0: Well, if you're new with us, uh, as you just heard and uh, probably have already seen in the bulletin, uh, we are indeed uh, looking at the book of Daniel this morning. We're in Daniel chapter seven because uh, we did uh, chapters one through six prior to the summer. We took a break for our usual summer psalms and uh, now that we are returning in September, we are returning uh, to Daniel. And I couldn't have really chosen, in a sense, a more difficult uh, chapter to return to. Uh, so put your thinking caps on this morning. Uh, there's a lot in this. Daniel is divided into two halves pretty easily, pretty clearly. If you just read through the book of Daniel, you'll, you'll see that chapters 1 through 6 are very different uh, from chapters seven through twelve, chapters one through six include the stories that we love to hear, the the ones that we are that we are familiar uh, with. The book of Daniel, chapter six includes the the main story that you're all familiar with, Daniel and the lion's den. But chapter three uh, has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, standing for God even in the face of being thrown into a fiery furnace. Chapters one through six, therefore, are what we call historical narrative, in terms of the genre. What what is the genre of the literature of the book of Daniel? Daniel has two different genres in it. Chapter seven through 12, if you just, again, read through it, you'll see that it's very different in nature. It's not historical narrative. Chapter seven through 12 changed dramatically. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, that word, literally just means an unveiling or a revelation. In the New Testament, we have the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. It is an apocalypse. Now, what is apocalyptic literature? Well, one Old Testament scholar says this, biblical apocalyptic shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of God and of his Christ. This revelation is complex and mysterious, but has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. Did you hear that? This revelation is complex and mysterious. If you've ever read through this section of Daniel, if you've ever read through the book of Revelation... You know how difficult it can be. An unveiling or a revelation does not equal everything is crystal clear. By no means do I have this figured out fully. Many excellent biblical scholars differ greatly on aspects of Daniel chapter 7 through 12. So even though over the next who knows how many sermons, we will be looking at specifics, and I'll be giving my best to try to understand the specifics. I'm going to say at the outset that we will not have it all figured out, but that's okay. Because as we'll see, even Daniel himself, who prior to this revelation in chapter 7 had been batting a thousand, Daniel knew what all the other dreams meant. Daniel could interpret everything else. Even he needed help when he received this revelation apocalyptic revelations function kind of like an impressionistic painting they give us pictures almost like a movie but with an impressionistic painting the the closer you get in some senses the more complicated it becomes you miss the forest for the trees as you move back you begin to see the big picture So that same Old Testament scholar says this, if we focus our attention on what is clear and straightforward rather than one what is complicated and obscure, then we will find blessing and encouragement in the apocalyptic portions of the Bible. So I say all that to say as we venture into this section, let us do the same. Let's try to focus our attention on what is clear and straightforward so that we don't leave every sermon disgruntled about what we don't know about the text. Rather, let's attempt to leave every sermon encouraged and comforted by what we do know about the text. Today's text is Daniel chapter 7. Now, in the bulletin, I just listed chapter 7, uh, because I didn't even know when I submitted this how far I'd be able to get in this. Uh, Today being Very introductory, we're going to be looking only at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Daniel chapter, oh, if you have a Bible with you, as always, I'd encourage you to follow along, especially. Uh, This is, again, a complex uh, uh, section. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible underneath uh, the seats in front of you. And if you're going to be using that Bible, You'll find the passage on page 744. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So again, Daniel is divided into two literary genres. Again, chapters 1 through 6, historical narrative. Chapters 7 through 12, apocalyptic literature. But Daniel, interestingly enough, among all the books in the Old Testament, uh, is divided also by two languages. Now, the Bible as a whole generally speaking, almost the entirety of it is in two languages. In the New Testament, the Bible in the original manuscripts was written in Greek. In the Old Testament, the original manuscripts were written in Hebrew. But that isn't true for Daniel. Daniel is written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. What's interesting about the way Daniel is written is that There's a little bit of Hebrew in the beginning, followed by Aramaic, and followed by Hebrew to close out the rest of the book. Daniel chapters essentially 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, while Daniel 8, 1 through 12, or Daniel 8, 1 through chapter 12 is written in Hebrew. So essentially you have a little bit of Hebrew at the beginning. Aramaic in the middle and the very end is Hebrew. Daniel chapter 7 functions then as a kind of hinge chapter connecting the two halves together because in its literary genre it's connected to what comes after chapters 8 to 12. In its literary genre it is apocalyptic and it fits in the 8 to 12 but in its language being written in Aramaic it fits with chapters two through six. And so it kind of draws both halves together. One Old Testament scholar says this, the change in language from Hebrew to Aramaic and back to Hebrew is deliberate on the part of the author, creating an ABA pattern in the overall structure of Daniel. So in other words... If Daniel 7 is the hinge chapter in the whole book, then it's important that we get, as best we can, an understanding of this chapter. We may like chapters 1 through 6 better. We may enjoy the historical narrative more. But chapter 7 is, you could make an argument, more important to know. Scholars point out that Chapter 7 is the hinge chapter. It is the central chapter. It is the most important chapter in Daniel. Chapter 7 in Daniel is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Chapter 7 opens this way In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. The first thing to note. When we get to chapter 7, already is an oddity. Chapter 7 goes back in time. If we're reading through chapters 1 through 6, we see that it is chronological. It goes forward in time through all of the years that Daniel was there, all the way till when the Persians come and and Cyrus is now king, and Daniel's living under Persian rule, and that, as an 80-year-old man, he's thrown into the lion's den. But chronologically, now in chapter 7, we've now moved back in time to before chapter 6. Chapter 7 places us in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. At the end of chapter 6, he's around 80 years old. Now, here at the beginning of chapter 7, he's about 65 years old. Chronologically, Chapter 7, in this dream, places us and Daniel in between the events of chapters 4 and chapters 5. It's now about 50 years since Daniel was exiled into the land of Babylon, and it's been about 10 years since the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel has this dream in chapter seven, the Babylonians still rule the world. They're still the top dog. Uh, they still have, in a sense, the most power. But their power is waning. Nebuchadnezzar was the great king. Nebuchadnezzar was for sure a tyrant and uh, and and a, and, a, and, a, and an evil man in a lot of ways. He destroyed Jerusalem, raised the temple. Uh, killed many people, deported them off to Babylon. But in a lot of ways, Nebuchadnezzar, for a fallen, sinful leader, was a great leader. He was a builder, he kept them united, he, he designed and built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He was the, the man that Daniel served under for the longest period of time. And Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have a pretty close relationship. Despite the fact that for most of his life, Nebuchadnezzar did not know the Lord. But Nebuchadnezzar has died. He died 10 years earlier, and the Babylonians' dominance in the world is waning. There has been turmoil since Nebuchadnezzar died. The the throne has flipped hands many times as there's been a, a tug of war for leadership, and Daniel has seen all of this. He's seeing that Babylonian power is is beginning to crumble, and now this man Belshazzar, who is in his first year, he's really a a puppet ruler placed there by the the king in Babylon called Nabonidus, who is away doing other things, and he's placed this man Belshazzar, who's not a a nice man, in charge of things, and Daniel has even begun, uh, and as we see when we get to chapter five, which happens after this, Daniel begins to lose his place of power. He slips into obscurity. So for Daniel, this is a time of really great change and and uncertainty. On the one hand, Daniel knows that it's not too much longer before God's promise to return the Jews back to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity is going to happen. And Daniel will be around to see that happen. He won't return, he'll stay, but he will see that promise kept. That's not long in the future. So Daniel's got this hope on his mind, but at the same time, what will happen in world history? God surely will keep his promise, but, but what else will happen as this power that has stabilized the world is coming to an end? Perhaps you this morning have questions in your own mind of what will happen in history. I mean, we don't have the privilege of knowing the future other than what God has told us. We're not uh, outside of time like God. We didn't create. We're not writing history as God has done. We have to wonder. And of course, in this day, Uh, social media thrives on doom and gloom narratives. I know uh, I can get sucked into it as well. I'm not even on social media, but just uh, reading headlines or watching a little bit of the news or watching a few YouTube videos can send me into uh, some despair, uh, as Michelle could tell you. I tend to be a glasses-half-empty type of person. I say I'm not. Uh, I'm just a realist, is is what I tell myself. Not a not a, a pessimist. And yet, even though uh, we can fall for these doom and gloom uh, narratives and and uh, believe things that, that probably aren't as uh, aren't as true as they seem, if this world were sinless, if this world were completely stable, uh, there would be no doom and gloom narratives to fall for. I mean, if we lived in a perfectly sinless. Perfect, perfectly stable world uh, we wouldn't have any world is ending headlines to believe Daniel is in this same kind of moment and in the midst of this upheaval and uncertainty he lays down and has a dream verses 2 and 3 Daniel said I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea Different from one another. Now, I didn't read this part this morning, but Daniel tells us later on in this chapter that the the dream that he has very much frightened him. He was very, very much deeply troubled by this dream, and we can see from the very beginning why that would be so. Notice that what is stirred up is the great sea. Now, we, as my family and I just did not too long ago, we oftentimes will go to the sea, or to the ocean, for a vacation, uh, to relax, to take a nap in the sand and listen to the waves uh, lap against the shore. But to the Hebrews, the sea was not a place for vacation. To the Hebrews, the sea symbolized chaos and danger and uncontrollable evil. And in some ways, the Hebrews were right, because all you need to do is venture into the ocean a little bit when you're on vacation to find out how chaotic and powerful the sea can be. I just, uh, my, our boys, our oldest boys, uh, Luke and Andrew, are, are at the beach uh, today, Lord willing, listening to this, um, but um, I'll find out when they get home if they worshiped, uh, but anyway, I sent them an article, uh, texted them an article, because just last week in the Jersey Shore, where they are, three people were killed, were drowned because of the powerful riptides. They weren't able to be saved. And there's actually a video of a Marine uh, that, that goes out and rescues a guy on his board and pulls him back. The guy's about to drown. The sea can be chaotic, the sea can be dangerous, and you can picture here what Daniel is picturing. The dark sea in a storm, white caps, waves, fury, and out of this chaos, this danger, this uncontrollable dark evil come four beasts. And again, later we find out that these four beasts represent four kings, or four kingdoms that show up on the earth. Is it any wonder, then, that Daniel is frightened by what he sees? But notice something. It's subtle, but it's very important. Right from the get-go, what do we see? What is stirring up the great sea? I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Right from the start, we get a glimpse of the sovereignty of God. Right from the start, we see that God is in control of everything that is about to transpire. In the Old Testament, we see over and over again how horrible and chaotic and evil the sea is. The sea is dangerous. And yet, again and again and again, the Old Testament reminds us that it is God who created the sea. It is God who owns the sea. It is God who controls it and who alone can calm the wind and the waves. The Bible everywhere declares that even the worst evil that happens on earth is ultimately in the hands of a good and sovereign God. God, from all eternity, our Westminster Confession says, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And we see that God is in control of even the worst things that happen right from the start of the book of Daniel. If you go all the way back to the first sermon, to the first two verses in Daniel, we see in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. From the beginning of this book, the first two verses, we are told that even something as horrible as the exile into Babylon is sovereignly ordained by God. Nebuchadnezzar, in his own wickedness, in his own, for whatever reasons he had, thought he was conquering Jerusalem. He thought he was taking over the temple He thought he, by his own power, was defeating the God of Israel and stealing the vessels from the temple. And yet, what we find out is that God gave them to him. We find out even earlier, when we read some of the earlier prophets, that God, in fact, raised up Nebuchadnezzar to do that very thing. There are going to be terrifying things that Daniel will see in the stream, but what we see from the very beginning, is that God controls the chaos and destruction of this world. Nothing happens by accident, not even the destruction of empires and the suffering of God's people. It is God himself who stirs up the kingdoms that rule this world. Do you believe that this morning, Christian? Do you believe that God sovereignly ordains whatsoever comes to pass? God is not the author of evil. The Westminster Confession goes out of its way, the Bible goes out of its way to say that God does not author evil. He does not place evil in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, but whatever evil motives Nebuchadnezzar had, whatever evil motives these kings and these kingdoms have, God at the same time is using their evil motives for his good purposes. Daniel has this vision of these four beasts in verses 3 to 8. It's important to understand that since chapter 7 is this hinge chapter, and is connected not only uh, with eight through 12, but is also connected with chapters one through six, it's important to look at something else involving the structure of chapters one through six. If you look at the structure of chapters one through six, specifically chapters two through six, and you add chapter seven into that, what you find Is that chapters 2 through 7 have a very unique and deliberately structured structure. It's what we call a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel mirror one another. In other words, when you look at these chapters, you find that chapter 2 mirrors chapter 7 that chapter three mirrors chapter six, and that chapter four mirrors chapter five. And what you find is the middle of the chiasm makes the main point. Well, if chapters two and seven mirror each other, then it helps us to understand what chapter seven is talking about. Because in chapter two, we find a dream. Think back to chapter two nebuchadnezzar has a dream and his dream is about a huge statue each section of the statue represents different kingdoms a head of gold a chest of silver a a middle of bronze and a a lower part of iron in chapter 7 daniel's dream is about four beasts each of which represents a kingdom So if we see that chapter 7 and chapter 2 mirror each other, we see perhaps that chapter 2 can help us to understand chapter 7. What do we find out in chapter 2? When Daniel comes to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he finds out that the head of the statue that gets crushed, ultimately, is made of gold. Daniel is told, when he interprets it, that the head of gold is, for certain, Nebuchadnezzar. And his kingdom. Daniel tells him that. The head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold, and, and after you, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and then there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Interestingly, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we're only told for certain what the first kingdom is. We're not told what the other three are, only that there are three successive after Nebuchadnezzar. Now we can make our best guess. My best guess is that after Nebuchadnezzar, we have the Medo-Persian Empire, which is silver, the Greece Empire, which is the bronze section, and then Rome, which is the iron section. But we don't know for sure, and, and scholars even debate that, In Daniel's dream, notice, no kingdom is even specified. They're all just described, but none are specific. But if we use the dream of chapter 2 to help us interpret the dream of chapter 7, then we can be almost certain that that first kingdom is Babylon, the kingdom that is a lion with wings. Why can we be almost certain of that. Well, again, for one, because it was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But secondly, it's because the beast is represented by a lion with wings. Now, that doesn't mean much to us these days, but Daniel would have known instantly what that represented because lions with wings were all over the Babylonian empire. It was a symbol that was found on public buildings and and courthouses everywhere in Babylon. One scholar says winged lions with human faces were common in Babylonian art, and they were placed at the entrances of important public buildings in Daniel's era. It'd be like if you and I had a dream tonight, and in our dream the the first kingdom that comes out of the sea is represented by a bald eagle holding an olive branch in one claw and arrows in another. I don't think we'd have to be told what kingdom that is. I think we could see whether, now, a thousand years from now, somebody might say, I don't know what that is, and they'd have to read history books and find out, oh, that was the symbol of America. But we know that. Daniel knows what this lion with wings represents. Notice also that the lion's wings are plucked out. Notice that it is lifted up from the ground. It's made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of man is given to it. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar became arrogant, thought of himself as the one who owns all of this. It's all mine. It's all the work of my hands. And what happened? God immediately humbled him, made him like an animal for a time. He clipped off his wings, he humbled him, and then raised him up and gave him the mind of of a man back. This is what happens to this first beast. So the first beast is, almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, Babylon. But what about the others? Again, we're not sure. There's no way to definitively know what they are just like. There was no way to definitively know with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. One scholar says this, it seems throughout that God starts with what Daniel knows and moves to what he doesn't know. He starts with what Daniel is familiar with in order that Daniel will have confidence in the vision about things he is not familiar with. Again, let's not get bogged down in what we don't know. What do we know? We know for certain that these are kingdoms, that these are kings. These are kingdoms of men. We know that these kingdoms are formed out of chaos and evil. We know that they bring destruction and evil to the world. What do we see? The bear. The bear has ribs in its mouth and it devours. The leopard has wings and it has dominion. And the fourth, the most terrifying beast, devours and breaks into pieces. A good guess is that these represent Medo-Persia, Greece under Alexander the Great's conquest, and Rome. They all brought in some way, shape, or form destruction, chaos, and evil in their wake. But you see, it's okay that we don't know for sure what they are because that's true for all kingdoms of men. We don't need to stop with Rome. Just move forward in history. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, as long as they are created and ruled by sinful men, to some level or another, bring destruction, chaos, and sin in their wake. Do I think that these beasts refer to Persia and Greece and Rome? Yes. Perhaps. But in their ambiguity, they point to all future kingdoms of men before Christ returns to set things right. Notice, again it's subtle, but notice how these great beasts are ultimately controlled by a force beyond their power. Yes, they do destructive things, but, but notice that the lion is lifted up. The lion is made to stand. The lion is given the mind of a man. Notice that the bear is told. He's commanded, arise and devour. The leopard is given dominion. All of these powers are Yes, they're they're operating in their own strength, but that strength and that ability is given to them by another greater power. The horrible things that these nations and these kings will do is, again, completely under the sovereign control and will of Almighty God. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I form light I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. This fourth beast, which we will look at more closely next week, is different than the rest. This fourth beast is unrecognizable. It's almost indescribable. It's, it's just described as terrible, as horrific, It is described as having ten horns, the horn being the symbol of power and strength and self-defense. One of these horns, a little horn, is a king that comes out that combines incredible power with arrogance and begins mocking God. Again, hopefully we'll look more closely at the little horn in upcoming weeks. But what I want us to see to close out this sermon is what Daniel sees. Because in the midst of all of the chaos and the destruction and the evil and the raging sea and the suffering and the mocking, Daniel's gaze is suddenly drawn elsewhere. His gaze is suddenly drawn to where the ultimate power dwells. This power that had been hinted at before now is now in full view. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. God is called the Ancient of Days only here in Daniel chapter 7. He's called the Ancient of Days because these earthly kingdoms, however powerful they may think that they are, come and go. Where are they today? Where is Alexander the Great? Where is Julius Caesar? Where is Nebuchadnezzar? Even by this dream, Nebuchadnezzar was gone for 10 years. The Ancient of Days is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. The clothing and the hair of the Ancient of Days is white as snow. The earthly kingdoms are chaotic, they're evil. They're wicked, they're foolish, they're destructive, but God, the Ancient of Days, is pure. He is righteous, he is wise, he is life-giving, but his throne are fiery flames. Earthly kingdoms may think they're powerful, but their power is limited. God's power is omnipotent. It is eternal. Notice, many thrones are placed, but only one is occupied. The Ancient of Days takes his seat in that throne, and the picture is so different. Because here in this throne room of the Ancient of Days, the sea is not raging. It is calm. It is serene, is completely untouched and unfazed by the destruction happening below. This, brothers and sisters, is what is most important to grasp. Whatever the details the intricacies of these kingdoms, the most important thing, the thing that blazes in front of us is that God is reigning. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. In contrast to the dark and destructive chaos is the serene calm and righteousness created by the Ancient of Days. Notice, too, the uncountable number Of people and angels that surround the throne of the Ancient of Days. It's Daniel doesn't even bother to try to count 10,000 times 10,000. How long has it been in Daniel's life since he was ripped away from his homeland, since he was pulled away from everything that he knew from the temple, from his parents, from this holy land, and taken away into a foreign country where he was brainwashed and imposed upon him Babylonian culture and gods and way of thinking. How long has Daniel been steeped in that world? Perhaps now as a 65-year-old man, maybe all of his early companions that were exiled with him are long gone. How long has he perhaps thought of himself as all alone, as the only one left? Who even remembers to worship Yahweh. And here in this vision, God gives him the privilege of seeing that he's not alone. Daniel sees in this vision this great cloud of witnesses, invisible to the eye, and yet there surrounding the Ancient of Days. He is reminded in that vision that that this world is not his home, but that when he finally arrives at his home, he will be there with all of those saints. You know, Mark Dever used to say all the time, a Christian may be outnumbered here on earth at any given time in history. But he is never outnumbered when the saints of heaven are included. You're never outnumbered. What does Daniel see? The Ancient of Days judges. He judges and he completes the judgment. He takes care of evil. But we have to see something, and this is important to realize, that for a while the mocking is allowed to endure. For a while the Ancient of Days is ruling, and at the same time the beast is raging. For a while the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne, and the mocking continues. You see, there is, as we have said many times throughout, an already and a not yet to God's reign. Daniel sees both. When he gets a glimpse of the ancient days, at the same time, he is distracted by the mocking that the little horn is doing. At the same time, they're both going on. One day, God's kingdom is going to completely vanquish the evil of this world. One day it will all be done away with. All the kingdoms of men will be nothing but rubbish in a sinful past. But until that day, the kingdoms of men still rage. But we have to always remember that God is still on his throne. Just like Daniel's vision, God is ruling while the beasts are raging. You know, Christian, you only have one week to be here. One day a week. One day a week on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, you come here for an hour and a half. Maybe if you go to Sunday school a little bit longer. You have one day a week to be reminded of who's on the throne. You have one day a week to participate in this liturgy. To be reminded that the Ancient of Days rules. The the other six days of the week, you're out there. You're you're participating in the world's liturgy to some level or another. You're, You're being pressed in upon by a world that wants you to think, by a Satan who wants you to think that this world's powers are ultimate. That the state is ultimate. To be sure, this world's powers can be terrifying. It scared Daniel. It scares Christians today. Christians in Nigeria go to church fearing for their lives every Sunday from the Muslim terrorists that attempt to blow up their churches and set them on fire. Christians in North Korea have to fear being imprisoned and killed. You see, what do we do What do we do when when the powers of the state seem to crowd around us and become ultimate, when this society's view of the world seem to take over? We have to, like Daniel, lift our gaze heavenward. If, like Daniel, we lift our gaze above to the throne of God, to the ancient days, then we realize that our lives are not in the hands of the state. Ultimately, our lives are in the hands of the ancient of days. Will we automatically and completely be rid of all fear? if we simply know that God reigns? Probably not. Even Jesus himself was not rid of all fear. In that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, My heart is sorrowful unto death. He, of all people, knew that the Ancient of Days rules. And yet, when he knew what would become of him at the hands of the state, sweat drops of blood. Knowing that the ancient of days rules doesn't necessarily get rid of our fear, but it tells us where to take our fear. Jesus, when he was sweating drops of blood, went to his heavenly father that he knew was in control of everything. This passage, whatever its complexities, reminds us that no matter what horror is going on in the world, the ancient of days is still on his throne. Christian, you all bring some kind of chaos that is happening in your lives into this room this morning. There is evil in your life. There is chaos in your life. The great sea is raging in your life in some way. Look beyond it to the Ancient of Days. Know that He is working through it. Scripture tells us that Even something as horrible as the crucifixion of the Lord of Christ, the worst event in all of human history is sovereignly ordained by God. And that in the hands of the ancient days, even the crucifixion can be turned into the greatest thing that's ever happened on the face of the earth. Christian God is weaving his story. It's called history or his story for a reason. The Ancient of Days has won already. He won it on the cross when he defeated all the powers of this world. So take heart. We know who wins. We know who already has won. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So we will not fear, for this truth remains, that our God, Christian, is the ancient of days. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning to be reminded of this truth. Thank you, Father, for giving this vision to Daniel and for giving it and preserving it and giving it to us, that we can be reminded again that you, Father, are in control of our lives and in control of this world that you have already won the victory in Christ. Please impress that upon our hearts and minds this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.